History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the tumbleweed to my joke that was actually pretty good and deserved a lot better. <laughs> it's Mr. Ryan Weir. Hello, Peter. How you doing, Ryan? Yeah, I am good. Thank you very much. I'm raring to go. Good, good, because last week the Derslater gave us blue in Yemen during 700 to 800 CE. So, Ryan, are we going to lay down some great Yemeni memories or are you going to leave us feeling blue? Well, look, rest assured. This is a show that's going to be packed with facts that are too good to be blue. You're going to want to keep your eyes teeled because in the next hour we've got horny lizards, an eagle-eyed witch, a cracking story about crockery, a finger-munching fish, and a visit from a musical missionary. So stay blue to your seat, Pete, because if I got blues for you... <laughs> I started with tumbleweed rather appropriately there, didn't I? <laughs> Nevertheless, let's go onwards. Let's do it. We are travelling deep into the heart of desert country for this episode of HHE, to the seat of ancient civilizations, to a land of hot temperatures and even hotter politics. We're going to find ourselves in a world of extraordinary architecture, a land of milk and honey, from rugged coastlines to stark and craggy mountains, from an endless sea of dunes to mud-brick villages rising from the depths of lush green canyons. Welcome to the Happy Land the jewel of Arabia. Welcome to Yemen. Officially, the Republic of Yemen. This is a country found at the crossroads of Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Yemen is a country on the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula, uh, just east of Africa. Yemen borders Saudi Arabia to the north, Oman to the east, the Red Sea to the west, and the Arabian Sea to the south. It has a coastline which stretches for about 2,000 kilometers, that's about 1,200 miles, off of which are over 200 islands, including Socotra Island, which is where you're going to go if you like alien landscapes and native unnatural creatures found nowhere else on the planet. I do like those things. Yeah, 90% of the reptiles there completely unique to Socotra Island. Yemen is the second largest Arab state. It occupies 550,000 square kilometres, that's 214,000 square miles, which is exactly one <laughs> Yemen to a France. We found a France equivalent. Of France. There it is. Um, that's great. I had no idea it was so big. I was, in my mind, thought it was small, but obviously that's madness. It's not, but it's also wider. It's sort of stretched, whereas France is sort of a square shape. This is like a rectangular on its side. The capital is Sana'a, one of the world's most ancient cities that is still inhabited. Legend says that Noah's son, Shem, established the city. 
but we do know that it's at least 2,500 years old and that 4 million people still live there. Wow. Once one of the wealthiest Arab nations, Yemen is today the Middle East's poorest country, suffering many economic, political, and social issues. As of 2022, time of recording, the population is hard to define, but it's estimated to be around about 30 million people, of which 24 million people, or 85% of its population, are in need of humanitarian aid. Wow, you don't think about that in the Middle East, do you? You think of oil money driving around in sports cars. Yeah. Uh, Globally, Yemen is ranked the worst country for gender equality, second worst for hunger, beaten only by the Central African Republic, listed within the top 10 most dangerous countries in the world, and is considered entirely unsafe for tourists to visit. Wow. I mean, good for you in the sense of this is blue stuff. It leaves you feeling blue, doesn't it? But crumbs, that sounds grim. Yemen's flag, let's talk about that. Adopted in 1990 is horizontally striped red, white and black. Red representing the blood of the struggle to achieve independence and unity. White signifying a bright future and black representing the dark days of the past. That's a pretty fatalist outlook to have on your flag, isn't it? It is. Famous people of Yemen. English comic actor Eddie Izzard. No. Born in Aden, Yemen, in 1960. Uh, comedy TikTok star Hamza the Fantastic. Not not, a, not come across him. <laughs> Born in Yemen, uh, since moved to the USA. Is he fantastic? I mean, I guess so. I him up, he <laughs> it's was in the name. fantastic. <laughs> and Mohammed bin Awad bin Laden, the founder of a construction conglomerate and also the father of Osama bin Laden. Right. Yeah. The national anthem. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> is called United Republic. Would you like to hear it? I would. All right, let me play it for you then. Oh. Oh, that's upbeat, isn't it? Isn't it? She's cheering me right up. I mean, I wouldn't want to march to war on it, <laughs> but I would go to the fairground. I feel like this could be your theme as you just walk down the street. Yeah, this is great. I, lo- I'm, I too, I'm going to adopt this as my national anthem. <laughs> Yemen facts! <laughs> How bleak is this going to be? <laughs> People in Yemen like to chew cat. What? Oh, cat. Yeah, I don't mean pussy. I mean a type of plant, which when chewed gives a juice that provides like an amphetamine-like effect. Effects which include euphoria and excitement. 90% of adult men chew cat several times a day. (laughs) Uh, It's even considered part of business culture. So if you need help making decisions, you get everybody around, you'll chew some cat. I mean, this is like a low grade, everyone in the 80s in the business meeting doing coke, isn't it? Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. What are you doing with that horse? Well, I'm trying to swallow it. Why are you trying to swallow a horse? Well, to catch the cow. The cow? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how, but I swallowed a cow. Well, why'd you do that? To catch the goat. The goat? Yeah, I opened my throat and swallowed a goat. What? To catch the dog. Dog? Yeah, I know. I'm a hog. I swallowed a dog. Why did you swallow a dog? To catch the cat. Imagine that. I swallowed the cat. Ryan, are you on drugs? Yes, that's what I'm trying to tell you. I've got to swallow the horse, to catch the cow, to catch the goat, to catch the dog, to catch the cat, which made me high. (laughs) 
Where's Tiddles? Yemen is home to the world's oldest skyscraper city. Built in the 16th century, Shibam is known as the Manhattan of the desert. It is a city of about 7,000 people who live in about 500 mud-brick, high-rise buildings, some of which are as high as 11 stories tall. That's 30 metres or 98 feet. That's uh, taller than the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, twice as tall as the Hollywood sign, and 14 times taller than basketball star Shaquille O'Neal. Well, so he could live there quite comfortably. Yeah probably on the top floor. I'm not sure I'd like to live on the 11th floor of a 16th century building. Mud brick building. Yeah, pretty spooky, huh? I guess it's been stood for this many years. It must be reasonably secure, mustn't it? Yeah. Yemen is considered the birthplace of coffee. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know this. I was pleased to find this out. From the 15th to the 18th centuries, so fairly recently, Yemen served as the international hub for coffee. In fact, during that time, all the coffee consumed anywhere in the world was grown in Yemen. The name coffee, in fact, comes from the Arabian word korwai. Uh, And according to one account, it started when an Islamic scholar and mystic discovered that if he boiled the seeds of a certain fruit, the water turned a muddy brown. And if he drank that water, it lifted his spirit, awakened his senses, and allowed him to pray and study throughout the night. So to recap, this is the nation that discovered or originated coffee. Yes. And chews cat all day long. Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) They're a little hopped up. It's it's a tense place, I would imagine. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, he shared this recipe with his friends. And now we live in a world of double venti, half soy, non-fat, decaf organic, vanilla, double shot, gingerbread, frappuccino with foam, whipped cream, double blended with NutraSweet and ice. Just just have a black coffee place. Yeah. Uh, Coffee beans were principally sold around the world from the city called Mocha. And in fact, for many years, coffee was only known around the world as Mocha. So we could have all been drinking mocha, but now uh, today we know Cafe Mocha, uh, which is a sort of chocolate-flavoured milky coffee, a bit like a cafe latte. So to recognise Yemen's place as the father of coffee, let's drink a mocha. Absolutely. I'm in. All right. I mean... Part of me was hoping he'd pull out a bag of cat. (laughs) So, Peter, given that the studio is incredibly hot... It really is. ...during these summer months, I opted to go for iced mocha instead. Genius idea, my friend. So, uh, like, I wanted to buy the beans and I wanted to do the whole thing and get it all made for you, you know, like we normally do. Yeah. And then I was like, it's too hot. (laughs) (laughs) It's too hot. So, cheers. (laughs) Okay, so, give me the experience, Pete. Okay, I've opened the tin. Says it's single origin Arabica coffee with Belgian chocolate. So, this should be a lovely experience. I do like a mocha, generally speaking. First, on the nose, as you know, can't smell a thing, as ever. So, you might have to help with that. (laughs) Smells of chocolate. Okay. Oh, Silky mouthfeel. Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to say yummy. Mm-mm-mm. It sort of leads with the chocolate and then the coffee comes in as an afternote. It's nice. It, it's almost like a, a chocolate milkshake with a hint of coffee, isn't it? It is, but it's delicious and lovely and cold. So <laughs> thank you for that. Enjoy, enjoy the cold beverage. <laughs> so there we go. Let's get into history, Pete, and you're going to need to buckle up for this one. Oh, this is going to be hard riding. <laughs> What's this? Up and down, a roller coaster ride. Okay, I'm strapped in, ready so, to go. 
<laughs> so prepare thyself. 400,000 years ago. Who's there, Pete? Is it early man? <laughs> yeah, it's he early man. Gets around. <laughs> yeah, and he kindly leaves some stone tools for modern archaeologists to find. About 25,000 years ago, we see the first known rulers start Yemen's history, a history which defines itself as one of the oldest centers of civilization in the world. Over 15,000 years, there is a people called the Qatanis, descendants of Joktan from the Bible and the Quran. They establish trade routes. They build dams to control flash flooding, and they are the first to start to write down Arabic. They also remove the bark from certain trees, they extrude the resin, and they allow it to harden. Any ideas what they might do that for? Um, to make sculptures of nude ladies. <laughs> That's what I'd do. That's what you do. <laughs> no, they don't. They start producing the exotic spices of frankincense and myrrh. Myrrh. Yeah, on mass scale. And people go nuts for it, Pete. They can't get enough of the frankincense and myrrh. And basically, a trading industry booms because everyone wants it. So they set up these caravans of camels and they export frankincense and myrrh all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean and they start raking in cash. So between 1000 BCE and 500 CE, a series of small kingdoms pop up and each take their turn at controlling the spice trade. And so lucrative was this trade that the Romans called Yemen Arabia Felix, or Happy Arabia. And they even tried to take it for themselves because they wanted a bit of that, they, you know, that they money. They do do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that happens. But, uh, you know, unusually for them, they failed at it. And so it was left to the Egyptians in 520 CE when they had a go. And they were successful. But unfortunately, they were late to the party. Uh, Yemen was no longer the only trader in spices. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans were each picking up much of the business for themselves and doing their own trade in sort of similar spices. And so... Uh, Yemen's grip on that trade was starting to, to lessen. And as such, the Egyptians sort of witnessed the demise of these once great kingdoms and were only in charge for about 50 years. Wow, how disappointing. Yeah. After all that effort. All right. So by 570, the Persians arrive, specifically the Sassanid dynasty. So for about 200 years, the Sassanids dominate Yemen until around about the 8th century, our time period, when the Islamic caliphates arrive. The first to arrive is the Umayyad, who we've talked about previously. These are the second caliphate to emerge after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. These guys were big, right? They were way up in Uzbekistan and... Um... All over the shop. They were everywhere, yeah. and But they're only there for a short while because then in 750 CE, so again, slap bang in the middle of our time period, the Abbasids take over and they reign for a long period of time until 1258, in fact, when the Mongols come along and invade and kick some Abbasid butt. So, in the 9th century, we now find the introduction of the Zaydi sect from Iraq. These are a group of Shiite Muslims who accepted Zayed ibn Ali, uh, a direct descendant and therefore legitimate successor to the Prophet Muhammad. This is important because much of Yemeni culture for the next 1,000 years bears the stamp of Zaydi Islam. So, bear that in mind. We then get like this confusing series of factional, dynastic, imperial rulers contesting one another and against the Zaydis for control of Yemen. Until the smell of coffee puts Yemen back on the global map. Oh, we're back, baby. We've got another product. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> New Coke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> New myrrh. New myrrh. Don't call it that. <laughs> 
And the Egyptians are like, oh, oh, wait. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> uh, the Ottomans and various other European powers, <coughs> British, they soon arrive and they're looking to control this emerging coffee market. So conflict between these powers goes on for nearly 100 years or so until the 16th century when the Ottoman Empire wins out and they step in as leaders but are almost immediately driven out. <laughs> so I don't know if it was worth it or not. Various others like step in and try to establish a presence uh, you know, in, in the area. But it's in 1839 that the British occupy the port of Aden in the southeast of Yemen, making it a British colony. The Ottomans return shortly after in 1850, and they occupy land just to the north of that, in the north of Yemen. And the Ottomans and the British start to clash over territory, as you might expect when two empires meet. They solve this, though, in 1904. They have this peace treaty which splits Yemen across the middle, creating a north-south divide. The Ottomans in the north, the British in the south. In 1918, the end of the First World War, North Yemen becomes independent from the Ottomans, and North Yemen establishes itself as a kingdom. North Yemen disputes the British claim on South Yemen, and many people in the South, though, are kind of pro-British. Reasons for that being money, right? The British are sort of giving them lots of opportunities for the future, shall we say. So, there, you know, there's this sort of North-South divide that starts to emerge. In 1960, North Yemen has a military coup. There is a civil war which overthrows the kingdom and the Yemen Arab Republic is established. At the same time, Britain decides to leave South Yemen, blaming increasing pressure from local insurgencies. And by 1967, true to their word, they're gone. Unfortunately, that vacuum means that this unleashes a lot of political land grabbing. Everybody's just trying to grab what they can. In 1990, North and the South finally unite and they become the Republic of Yemen. And that is where the story ends. Only that's not the end, Pete. No. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little bit more complicated, so hang on in there. In 1990, the Gulf War starts with the invasion of Kuwait. I'm sure you'll remember that. I do. Yeah, and the new Yemen president decides to vote against any use of force against Kuwait, i.e. bombing the living heck out of them. This angers the United States, who want to bomb the heck out of Kuwait, and so the USA goes to their friends, Saudi Arabia, Yemeni's neighbours, and says, ah, oh, we don't like them. And so Saudi Arabia, as a punishment kicks out and expels 800,000 Yemenis from Saudi Arabia. They're just kicked out of the country. In 1994, a civil war then starts between the north and south of Yemen. Now, I know they joined together, but the armies never fully integrated. So whilst it was a unif unification in 1990, the armies didn't. The armies were still north and south. So the armies duke it out between them. And eventually the southern army loses. Now, at this point, religion in Yemen is split roughly 56% Sunni Muslims and about 42% Zaydis. The Zaydis feel oppressed because they are the smaller minority. And so throughout the 1990s, tension starts to grow between a Zaydi rebel group called the Houthis and the Yemen government. In 2004, war breaks out, which continues off and on until 2011, when an uprising forces the president to hand over power to his deputy. President Hardy then leads for about four years, during which time he acts principally as a United States, UK, Saudi puppet politician. An influence which is pretty much felt when he starts selling off parts of the country, you know, to those countries. Right. Yeah. You know, the rich bits, not yeah, the Saudi bits. Not the 
serve it to the, the desirable residencies only, of course. Exactly. The oil, principally. So in 2015, the Houthis have had enough, and they storm the capital, and they oust President Hardy, who then flees. He runs away to Saudi Arabia, where he is welcomed with open arms. So yes, to a lavish accommodation, I wouldn't wonder. I'm sure. Saudi Arabia is concerned by the thought of the Houthis taking control of Yemen, right on their border, but also because the Houthis were being supported, allegedly, by Saudi Arabia's enemy, Iran. So Saudi Arabia asks its friends to form a coalition and they begin a military campaign to get rid of the Houthi rebels and restore Hardy's government. So Saudi Arabia and their friends blockade the country, attack the ports and target infrastructure with logistical, intelligence and weapons supplied from their friends, Oman, Qatar, the USA, UK, France, Spain and Germany. At this point, Yemen is now roughly divided into three parts. You've got the Houthi rebels to the west, those that are loyal to the official government in the south and the east, and then you've got various sort of militant groups all across the centre, including Al-Qaeda and ISIS, Mm, who seemingly never seem afraid to get involved in war zones. Anyway, they're slap bang in the centre. And so a war rages between these three groups. Every day there are airstrikes from Saudi forces and they are causing devastation across Yemen. The Houthis are returning fire uh, using drones and missiles, either of their own or supplied by Iran or the designs supplied by Iran, until 2018 when the gruesome murder of the Washington Post journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi... Yes. He was killed in the Turkish embassy. Yes, by Saudi agents, by all accounts. Yes. At which point the Saudi coalition largely starts to fall apart, certainly on the outside. The UK, the US uh, continue to sell Saudi Arabia weapons. That's a good customer. And as of 2022, the war isn't getting any better. It's actually getting worse. The violence is increasing. Diplomatic relations are non-existent. And there is no real end in sight. I'd like to say that things were. That's just not the case. Both sides are accused of committing war crimes, and the real impact is on the people of Yemen, who who face the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. 24 million people, 80% of the population in need of aid and protection. 19 million will go hungry in the coming months, thanks principally to Putin's special operation in Ukraine, which is limiting the supply of wheat to Yemen. The largest outbreak of cholera ever recorded is happening in Yemen right now, in large part due to two-thirds of the population having zero access to any clean water. And worse, um, to date, an estimated... Sorry. Sorry. And worse, to date, an estimated 10,000 children have been killed or wounded. Jesus. And what's really sad, Pete, is that those numbers are... Likely wide of that margin. You know, we don't know for sure. You know, those are just the ones that, that, that are being reported. It doesn't sound like a situation that's going to get better with a few bushels of hay. No, it's not going to get better for a while. I'm sorry to end it there, but that is the reality. And that was the history. Hey everyone, just to let you know that if you did want to help the people of Yemen, there are various charities out there, but the organisation that History Happened Everywhere has made a donation to is the UNICEF Yemen Appeal. That's right, they provide conflict and disaster affected children with access to water, sanitation, nutrition, education, health and protection services. And you can find out more and donate at unicef.org forward slash appeals forward slash Yemen. We'll make that link available in the description for this episode and on our website, and you could do your part to help bring aid to Yemen. 
let's talk about blue. Well, I'm feeling relatively blue already, thank you very much. So in terms of setting the scene, uh, Yemen has done the job already, mate. I wish I could munch on some cat. <laughs> That'll perk me right up. Yeah. So let's talk about blue. You'll have seen a rainbow before, Pete. Very familiar with them. Do you know the colours of a rainbow? Red and yellow and pink and <laughs> <laughs> suddenly realised that I no, don't know it. <laughs> I know that Richard of York did something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, well, look, the rainbow... <laughs> I know it, I know it. Whatever I know it. colours are in there. Rhinus Pride Week as well, you think I'd know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the one I, I always think of is Joseph's Technicolor raincoat now. It's not even a rain... <laughs> it was red and yellow and orange and pink and blue and purple and... Anyway. I think it's red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo and violet. Very good. Well, look, before Dursley picks me up on it, <laughs> the spectrum of visible light, blue sits between both violet and green. And uh, it is one of three primary colours. You might have heard of red, yellow, blue. I have. Uh, red, green and blue. Yes. Those are primary. These are all colours I've heard of. <laughs> they are. And those are known as primary colours, right? Those two, three groups. And that means that you can mix them in various combinations to get other colours, right? You'll have probably done this when you were at school, I'm sure. You mix blue and red together and you get... Well, for me, I always mixed everything together and got brown over and over again. Uh, but yes, green... Uh, what well, was sorry? I purple. forgot the original colours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> blue and red together, you're going to get purple. Yes. Mix blue and green together, and you're going to get kind of cyan, kind of nice turquoisey kind of colour. In modern culture, though, blue is associated with cold, sadness, but also peace and tranquility. Um, it's been shown to lower blood pressure by slowing the heart rate and relaxing the body. It's also the least appetising colour. So some weight loss plans recommend that you eat food on a blue plate if you're trying to lose weight. That is the kind of diet plan I could get behind, <laughs> purchasing <laughs> one blue plate. Today, surveys show that it is the most popular colour. Almost half of men and women say that it's their favourite. But until relatively recently, blue didn't exist. Now, we've talked about this on one of our little animations before, but I'll run through it again because I'm sure that some people um, haven't heard about this. But blue didn't exist in the way that we think about it. In fact, there's not one ancient language which had a word for blue. Not Greek, not Chinese, not Japanese, not Hebrew. In the Greek novel The Odyssey, the author Homer, he describes the sea as wine dark, which is an Odd choice, given you could just say the sea was blue. <laughs> <laughs> Historically, every language had a word for black and white, or dark and light. Next came the word red, the colour of blood, wine, things that you might see quite frequently, I'm guessing. After red came the word yellow, and uh, later green. Uh, and so, with the evidence of the word for a colour, we know that people saw it, right? Because they wrote it down. They went, this is what we saw. <laughs> it's there. Um, so, we also know that people in the past had the same biology that we do, right? They have the same eyes, the same brain, um, and therefore they could see the colours that we do. There's no reason why they would see anything differently. But if there's no word for a colour, then what evidence do we have that people saw it at all? Well, now we're straying into deep philosophical territory, aren't we? <laughs> we are indeed. So the thinking is that blue just didn't exist in the same way that we know it today because people just didn't distinguish it from green or, like, say, any other darker colour. Which kind of makes sense because you think, what is significant about blue? What's significant about red is, oh, there's a red berry, I shouldn't eat it. Poisonous things are often red. My blood is red. These are all things I need to know about sharpish. And that's, I think that you said that was one of the earliest 
colors yeah. to come out. Green is leafy colors and yellows is flowers and things. Yeah. Blue, yeah, it matter? Right? <laughs> it's kind of a green. It's it's a kind of a green. <laughs> well, that's how they saw it. I'm going to stop saying blue. I'm going to stop using it. I'm going back to my roots. That's only going to get very confusing. <laughs> So yeah, so in the past, people didn't distinguish it from green or any other darker colour. And as if to prove that, there's a people today who don't see the colour blue either. And that is the Himba tribe of Namibia. And one researcher, Jules Davidoff, he conducted an experiment with the tribe where he showed them a circle, which was comprised of 11 green squares with one blue square. He asked members of the tribe to identify the single blue square, right? Which of these 12 squares is the blue one? And basically they couldn't do it, uh, despite the difference being like super obvious to, uh, you know, Jules Davidoff and to us if we'd looked at it. The Himba people looked at it and went, So I'm going to stop you there because my partner recently performed this identical experiment on me Mm -hmm. with uh, swatches of colour for the bedroom, (laughs) (laughs) wherein I was supposed to identify which of these apparently different colours was the right one for this bedroom and they all look the same to me. So I'm down with these tribes people, frankly. You have an honorary membership to the Himba tribe. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so what Davidoff discovered as part of his research is that the Himba people have more words for types of green than we do. Or, you know, other people do. Uh, and that when looking at a circle of green squares with only one slightly different shade of green that we wouldn't recognise because it's only just slightly off, they would immediately spot it. So <laughs> they were, you know, they were almost the opposite of what you're saying. They'd be, if it was green swatches of paint, they'd, they'd know each one indistinctly. I want Arctic pine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're the same colour. <laughs> Uh, Right, but without a word for blue, without a way of identifying it as different, it was much harder for them to notice what is unique about it, right? Anyway, all it means is, is that before blue became a common concept, humans saw it, but they didn't know that they were seeing it. (laughs) Does that make sense? It does. It makes me wonder how they were identifying their salt and vinegar crisps. (laughs) (laughs) Or cheese none in the UK. Well, yes. (laughs) Uh, The point is, by the 8th century, our time period, blue was still a relatively new, rare, and mysterious colour. And it didn't have the same associations that it does today. In fact, in South Arabia, where Yemen is, there was a particular superstition that I will tell you about after this. So, Pete. Yes, Ryan. Humans have many different eye colours. They do. Can you name some? Yes. In my case, yes. kind of a crappy grey, <laughs> I, was, I was told. That's also <laughs> a painting suede that you've got on your wall. <laughs> uh, also green. Yeah. I'm going to say hazel. Yeah. I'm going to pop That'll jet do. black in. Jet black. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, well, you're right, but you're also wrong. Those colours don't exist as eyes. <gasps> right. <laughs> So what have I been plunging into my doll's sockets all these years? (laughs) Uh, Basically, the pigmentation of the iris, which is the coloured bit of an eyeball, it only really varies from light brown to black. So everybody has a light brown or a black eye. It's an optical effect. People with blue eyes just have less dark melanin than those people who have brown eyes, which means that they absorb less shortwave blue light, and it's those waves being reflected out that we see instead. 
super crazy and I did not realise this. I guess because otherwise you could take an eye and ground it up and make blue dye out of it. <laughs> well, that would be one of the more expensive dyes, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is called the Tyndall effect. It's worth noting that eye colour also sort of varies depending on lighting as well. So that's why sometimes your eyes might appear greyer or slightly darker oh, or bluer or greener or whatever. That makes a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, this is all one person's fault, Pete. Is, is it me? <laughs> Could be. <laughs> it depends how old you are, because genetics has revealed that the mutation, which gave some people, like you and me, a lighter pigmentation in the iris, happened in one person born about six to 10,000 years ago. Wow. Prior to that, everyone brown eyes. The Can one you person even was imagine born... in the village, this guy shows up and they're like, wow, what is going on there? <laughs> yeah. Like Steve McQueen times 10. Right. Well, today, blue eyes are common across North Europe. Estonia has 99% of its people have blue eyes. Germany, 75% blue eyes. Uh, in the United States, one out of every six people, 17% of the total population. Blue eyes are you know, pretty common. Blue eyes are less common in the Middle East, but not unknown. And perhaps because it is so rare there that during the 8th century, people with blue eyes tended to be seen as abnormal. Exactly as you say, what is going on there, right? In the past, people in South Arabia have been suspicious of those with blue eyes, right? A number of superstitions have appeared to help them explain the phenomenon. In particular, the figure of the blue-eyed witch. It's a common figure in Arabic folklore. An example being the 7th century story of Zarka al-Yamama. Yamama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Zarka is a blue-eyed woman from the central Arabian region of al-Yamama. <laughs> it's made me laugh every time I've written it down in my notes. So Zarka al-Yamama... <laughs> <laughs> she possesses a vision so acute that it was said she could spot a white hair in milk. Ooh. Just an odd sort of thing to say you've got acute eyes on, but she could. And she was able to see into distances that would take three days to reach in person. This woman could see things. <laughs> she could see stuff, right? And here's the thing, she wasn't supernatural. No one said that she was like ghostly or a spirit or whatever. She's just a human being. She just had extraordinary physical abilities, like a superhero. I was going to say, basically, the first X-Man. There you go, exactly. One story about Zarka... Aldia Mama. <laughs> <laughs> ...says that she one day told her tribe members that she had seen trees in the distance marching towards their settlement and they were going to attack. So in gratitude for her help in, you know, saving their lives, they make her the new chief and everyone lives happily ever after. Hang on, whoa, wait. Yeah, that's right. That isn't what happened. <laughs> Actually, they thought she was insane, and so they gouged her eyes out and sent her off into the wilderness. Gotcha. That sounds about more right, right? <laughs> Did the trees attack eventually? That's a great question. She was proven right. Hurrah! Yeah. Or boo, I'm not sure. Enemy horsemen arrived, covered in leaves right, as a disguise, Sneaky. sneaking around as trees, and ambushed the settlement. Side note, it's thought that Shakespeare drew inspiration from the story of Zarka, first with the blue-eyed witch Sycorax from The Tempest, and second, the witches of Macbeth, who predict a marching army of trees. Burnham Wood comes to Dunstanane. There you are, exactly. That comes from Zarka. Hell, your mama! <laughs> I can't believe Shakespeare passed up on a your mama joke. <laughs> <laughs> 
What is thy name? Thou'lt be afraid to hear it. No, though thou'st called thyself a hotter name than any is in hell. My name is Macbeth. The devil himself could not pronounce a title more hateful to mine ear. No, nor more fearful. Well, thine mother art so fat, her doublet is a quadruplet. Well, thy mother is like fine neckwear, rough. Well, thine mother is so rank when she arrives in town, the plague leaves. Well... Thy mother is so verily poor that the beggars throw coins at her. Cut, cut, cut. William, I just don't think this is really working. Do do we need the comedy? Perhaps this could just be a tragedy? What? But uh, my comic wit is famed throughout the globe. Is it, though? Forsooth. Uh, Must I remind thee of my most famed and hilarious quip? For if love is blind, then I cannot see. Hmm. Okay, fine. (laughs) Berserk is just one story. In fact, Arabic literature and art is full of negative imagery about blue-eyed people, and it's never really gone away. Today, symbols like the blue-eyed devil is a key figure in the Nation of Islam's theology. Images of the evil eye, always rendered in blue. Like most people at the time, the ancient Arabians didn't have a word for blue, so they used the word zerk instead. Zerk meant luster or shine, and was a word that they used to describe the tips of swords, stars, bubbling water, and twinkling eyes. Oh, nice. Yeah, right? That but sounds also nice. bad when you're having them gouged out. <laughs> Today, we have a romantic image in our mind, right, of twinkling eyes and bubbling water and stuff. But then twinkling eyes, whether dark or light, was an indication of a flaw or an indication of an inferior moral character. Oh, Zerk was not a good thing. Zerk was also used to describe eyes which had turned white from blindness, so cataracts or glaucoma. Uh, It was used to describe someone suffering from severe dehydration. It was believed then that your eyes would change colour if you were lacking in moisture, like you were dying from the desert or whatever. They said that your eyes would change colour. They thought that sinners' eyes changed colour just before they died, and so their eyes would go light. Even the Quran talks about zerk eyes, saying that on the day of the resurrection, when the trumpet is blown, we will gather the guilty, shiny-eyed. So it was a really negative thing if you had Zerk eyes in the 8th century in Yemen. Point being that for most medieval Arabians, the causes of blue eyes were seen as mischievous or evil. And obviously, the best way of handling that is to write a list of all the people who had Zerk eyes. Obviously. You've got to identify these I've people. Got a little list. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so there were people who wrote or lists. A register, you might call it. <laughs> that is another word for it, indeed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so one historian at the time identifies 61 Muslim men into five categories. Those categories being Zerk, blind, one-eyed, cross-eyed, and those who had protruding teeth. I mean, also a useful <laughs> drop-down menu on a dating site. <laughs> zerk? <laughs> Seeking must not be zerk. Twinkling eyes. <laughs> Buck teeth, acceptable. <laughs> uh, in another book written by Ibn Adi called The Book of the Leprous, the Lame, the Blind and the Cross-Eyed. Another good drop-down list. <laughs> it's not a book you want to find yourself in, though, is it? <laughs> Every Hang year on, on, I'm on page five. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> I had a cold. <laughs> 
when I signed this release, you said it was called The Handsome People. <laughs> yeah, change the title, mate. Sorry, can't help you. <laughs> anyway, uh, I- Ibn Adi, he names three Zerk people. Abd al-Rahman, al-Abbas, and Marwan. I feel bad naming them now, <laughs> but I'm naming them regardless. The thing is, the author, Ibn Adi, was closely aligned with the Abbasids. And by sheer coincidence, all three men were identified in his book as Zerk were part of the Umayyad Caliphate. Right? <laughs> the three men that he says have protruding teeth and the eight cross-eyed men were also members of or supporters of the Umayyad Caliphate. Well, well, well. <laughs> yeah. And the men named as blind or one-eyed, injuries which were seen as conveying honour because uh, you're know, fighting in battles or whatever, were all men who were supporters of... The Abbasid Caliphate. Ah, yes. (laughs) So, clearly an attempt at propaganda. What if you're one-eyed, but that eye is a bit zerk? Where does that leave you? (laughs) Straight down the middle. (laughs) In the appendix. I don't know. So, look, given this was an attempt at propaganda, you might think this was all fake news, right? He was just making this up to, to say this about these people. Right, you know, we could just sort of write it off. However, we do know that there was some truth to the Umayyad being zerk. The Umayyad Caliph, the guy in charge, and indeed all of his children were blonde and mostly blue-eyed. The Zerk son of a gun. The Zerk (laughs) army, yeah. And the reason being that many of the Caliph's mothers were blonde, blue-eyed Christian slaves from the north. (laughs) Ah. Isn't that amazing? All comes together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this was perhaps why the dark-haired, dark-eyed, superstitious subjects of South Arabia immediately distrusted their new Umayyad blue-eyed rulers. Wow, that all just fit together neatly, didn't it? I don't like them. And fortunately, I've got a belief system that explains why. <laughs> Look at those dodgy Zerkide. Reptiles. Of course. Yeah. That would have been my guess. Next yeah. Up, reptiles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was wondering, I'm wondering when you were going to be, you were sitting there going, when, <laughs> when are we getting a reptile? <laughs> well, good news. Reptiles are coming. Thank goodness. <laughs> So, Silk Road traders, right? They're making their way across the hot, bleak deserts of the Arabian Peninsula. As they're making their way across the desert, they would have been startled by flashes of blue darting across the sand in front of them. What they were seeing was a lizard called the Sinai Agama. Native to southwest Yemen, it's known in Arabic as the Judge of Sinai due to the way it raises itself up on its front legs and tilts its head back imperiously. <laughs> Dursleus Lizardus. Yeah. <laughs> Glad you said it, not me. <laughs> Measuring 18 centimetres, so seven inches long. So quite relatively That's big sizable. for a lizard. Yeah, sizable. With a tail, which makes up two thirds of that length, so a nice long tail. The Sinai Agama is most of the time pretty unremarkable looking lizard, right? It has dull brown skin, spends most of the time basking in the sun, waiting on rocks for insects to just sort of wander past them so it can eat them. But in the spring, Pete, something incredible happens. In a bid to attract a female, the male Agama turns its skin an incredible bright blue colour. And once blue, the male bobs his head up and down, moves his eyes and does push-ups with his front limbs all in an effort to find a lady. That is not wildly different to my teenage self. <laughs> Only it was red colour that would come to the skin. <laughs> and the bobbing was more of a sort of chickeny dance. <laughs> oh, the chicken dance. Yes. Did that work out for you? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Sinai Agama can live for a long time, uh, an average lifespan for a lizard of 25 years. Wow, that's yeah, good quite going. long. But during the 8th century, for many Agama, their life was cut short thanks to Yemeni travellers who would snack on these blue lizards <laughs> as they made their way along the Silk Road. Oh man, I was just doing my press-ups and suddenly got hooked from behind and that was the end. <laughs> yeah. So, Pete. Yes, Ryan. Have you ever heard of the term blue economy? No. Well, let me tell you, the European Commission uses the term blue economy to refer to all economic activities related to oceans, seas, and coasts. Oh, I thought it was going to be adult work. <laughs> yeah, I did look up pornographic material in Yemen and then realised where I was looking up. <laughs> blue material was not, not easy to find. <laughs> anyway, we're talking about the blue economy. So, what is the blue economy in Yemen? Well, that mostly means fishing. And in the 8th century in Yemen, blue economy was the lifeblood of the nation. Southern Arabia had a huge coastline that was lined with towns, villages, ports, all built to exploit the seas around it. As such, fishing was an ancient tradition. Thousands of boats out every day looking for tuna, sardines, mackerel, sea bream, mullet, lobster, cuttlefish, and more. But one of the more popular catches is the bluefish. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, you might be surprised to learn that the bluefish is named after its silvery blue scales. That does make sense. It has two separated dorsal fins. They can weigh as much as 18 kilograms. Wow. They are fast, strong, and aggressive. They have this jutting, muscular mouth, which holds 40 sharp triangular teeth, uh, which are arranged like a saw. So I guess a bit like a shark. Uh, and they use these teeth to attack shoals of sardines, mullet, anchovies, basically any sort of small fishes that they come across. But the bluefish also use their teeth on human beings. <gasps> With even experienced Yemeni fishermen having reported that when they remove fish hooks, they often lose a finger. Oh my lord. Yeah. How you spot a Yemeni fisherman, is it? <laughs> yeah, the number of fingers they've got. <laughs> Swimming among bluefish is a big no-no. It's considered very dangerous. In July 2006, a seven-year-old girl was attacked by a bluefish near Alicante Canty in Spain, supposedly because the bluefish had been attracted by her splashing about in the water. Some mini jaws, isn't it? Little mini jaws, yeah, had a right old go out. And this is all a very good reason why young bluefish are called snappers and adult bluefish are called psychopaths. Oh my lord, <laughs> that's a fish name I can get behind. I'm fishing for psychopaths today. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Yemeni fishermen would catch bluefish using sort of a simple uh, hand line to catch it or a, or a net. Uh, it was said that every year 500 tonnes of bluefish would be caught. So we have the upper hand in the war against bluefish. Uh, unlike other fish, uh, which was sold and exported, bluefish was mostly eaten by the local Yemenites, though. And that is because bluefish is, has a high fat content, which means that it goes rancid quickly, especially in the heat. Well, I'll pass then, unless you're about to emerge from the fridge with a <laughs> big plate of steamed bluefish. Have you counted my fingers today? <laughs> you seem to have the whole ten. <laughs> The thing about a bluefish is he's got lively eyes. Blue eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you and he nibbles your fingers and those blue eyes roll over into white and you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming, the ocean turns red and 
Despite all your pounding and hollering, those bluefish come in and they nibble at you again. By the end, we lost 100 fingers. 1,100 fishermen went into that water and 1,100 fishermen came out. It wasn't that bad. So, blue economy, it isn't just about fishing. So, what else is it about? Well, Yemenites in the 8th century also relied on the seas for trading. So, the seaport of Aden, at the mouth of the Red Sea and the West Indian Ocean, was a natural harbour which lies in the crater of a dormant volcano. Aden was a famous port, with local legend saying that it may be as old as human history itself, Pete. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. One legend suggests that Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, were buried somewhere in the city. That just is asking for a Tomb Raider-style, <laughs> uncharted, Indiana Jones-style adventure to try and find the, the graves of Cain and Abel. So I think the next episode has written itself right there. Yeah. <laughs> we, off we go. <laughs> so Aden uh, was a distribution centre, principally, for the surrounding countries. So they would travel to Aden, and there they would sell their spices, precious stones, gold, pearls, all that sort of stuff. Oh, to travel back in time and see that would be amazing. You just read my mind, because I was about to say, you, as you probably know, I'm a sucker for fantasy-type scenarios. Yes. And the ports are always these oh. bustling, all these curious people from all over. And that experience must have been so different to anything else. So different. I mean, I just, I just love the idea of it. Anyway, uh, during the 8th century, the Abbasid and the Umayyad dynasties, they both used Aden as a key location on their sea route from Iraq to India, Malaysia, Indonesia, and even China. Oh, that's a solid range. So, through the trade, China's understanding of Yemen increases and the trade of goods between the two countries starts to grow. Especially important to the Yemenite traders, though, were Chinese blue and white porcelain. Ah, yes. I've seen Antiques Roadshow. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, They admired the crockery so much that the Chinese eventually referred to it as Muslim blue. Oh, really? (laughs) That's right. And they really did love it. Um, The Islamic world cherished it. They thought it was rare. They thought it was exotic. They brought it back home. Traders would be commanding high prices for it. Uh, There's one story of a caliph who gave away as gifts 20 pieces of Chinese imperial porcelain. Uh, and, and so popular was it that the caliphs gave orders for their local potters to try and replicate the pottery. So, you know, to be able to get it for a bit cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> Which is ironic, given what China's doing yes, with a lot of products yes, these days. How the turntables. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so in Yemen, uh, the medieval university town of Zabid, uh, it's about 25 kilometres inland, there are archaeological digs that have been happening there, and they've revealed 2,400 pottery shards uh, across 73 sites, dating to as early as 700 CE, so our time. And almost all of the pottery is considered locally made. Uh, and it includes blue and white, porcelain. Oh, wow. Uh, An analysis of the pottery shows that there was a viable ceramic industry for many centuries in Yemen uh, with a relatively wide variety of different decorative types that were being produced. Sadly, though, the technique has since been forgotten for centuries. Uh, The Tang Dynasty blue and white pottery just vanished, just disappeared. Uh, And in fact, only a few shards have ever been uncovered until 1985, when three complete pieces of Tang blue and white pottery were recovered from a ship wreck in Indonesia. 
At the end of the 8th century, an Arabian Dao ship completed its outward journey from Yemen to China, but sank on its return journey for approximately a mile off the coast of uh, Belatung in Indonesia. Now, it's unclear why it sank or why it was off course, but the wreck did provide two major discoveries. First is the biggest single collection of Tang Dynasty artefacts found in one location outside of China, and the Arabian Dao itself, which gives an insight into the trade routes between China and the Middle East during that period. Like, how did they do it? What did it look like? What materials did they use? And, you know, there's some really fascinating insights. Like, there's wood from Africa that was used in the ship. There was coconut husk ropes that they didn't know were used. But what is interesting is, is the Dao that sank is pretty much the same shape that are used today as some of the Arabian Dao's today. Don't mess with the winning formula. There you go. I think the lesson there is if you're ever in a ship that's sinking, yeah, you're probably going down and this is the end for you, but you're really going to help future archaeologists. Yeah, just remember that. Take solace in that as you you go down with the sinking ship. (laughs) Yeah. Hello and welcome to Antiques Roadshow. This week we're at Arley Hall in the lovely village of Birthchapel St Mary, and our first expert has quite the find. Well, hello there, and uh, what have you brought with you? I've brought this plate along. Oh, well, let's start with how you came about this. Well, it's been in my family for generations. I mean, Nan treasured it until she died, and uh, I've been looking after it ever since. Oh, well, and, and here it is. What a beautiful piece. Quite remarkable. Yeah, I do love it. Yes, uh, a porcelain piece, uh, hand-painted, the classic Chinese blue and white. Oh, right. Uh, yes, you can, you can see the very intricate brushstrokes here, which indicate the work of a master craftsman. Oh, fascinating. And on the reverse, of course, we'll find an indication of its age. And uh, yes, look here. Oh, oh, well, this is quite remarkable. Is it? Yes, this is Tang Dynasty. This makes this porcelain incredibly rare. Indeed, no other intact piece exists in such good condition. That's amazing. Yes, I I mean, I'm humbled to be holding something quite so special. Tang Dynasty blue and white porcelain has been treasured for centuries, with collectors eager for examples which show such exquisite... Oh, oh! It was probably fake. Okay, Pete, we have one last thing to talk about and how best to finish an episode than to end with a song. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Don't, you're going to say the Yemenis invented the blues now, aren't you? <laughs> Founded in Israel in 2010 by lead singer Ravid Kalani, Yemen Blues is a band. <laughs> no way! Yemen Blues. So they started as a band of nine people who mix sounds from different parts of the world, like Yemenite, uh, jazz, blues, Latino, African beats, to create a sound which is described as traditional Yemenite melodies with contemporary funk. Now, Ravid calls it new culture music and describes himself as a musical missionary. Nice. Isn't that awesome? He says, A lot of people take music as entertainment or something that will make them feel a certain way, but music is actually a reminder of how to behave in front of each other. Music shows us how to be a human being in this world. Now, Ravid has spent 10 years touring the world and says that his music has been embraced by young Muslims everywhere. He says that fans from Yemen write to him and say that Yemen blues has brought them pride. He says they feel as if the music represents them. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the current 
situation uh, prevents him from playing there. Um, and the closest that he has got so far is Turkey. But he does say, I want our next chapter to include many more Muslim countries and one day, Yemen. One day indeed. So let me play you a little bit. Yeah, let's have it here. Of Yemen Blues. <laughs> This would make a great, without wishing to diminish it, a great uh, soundtrack to a movie, it sounded like to me. Definitely. That's, that's exactly what I think. When I've been listening to the music for the past week or so, and I'm loving it. I just have it on repeat. It's that was really, really good. good. It's always a bit nerve-wracking when a new musical form is introduced to you. You think, <laughs> oh, am I going to sound like a Philistine here? But I enjoyed that very much. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is with Yemen Blues is that it does have different songs, right? It's, they're not, they don't all sound the same. Um, sometimes with a band, you listen to the music and one track kind of blurs into yeah. the next. This is all very different because you're using different um, band members, different music styles. It really is an eclectic thing. And I fully recommend that everybody check out Yemen Blues. Excellent. Good work. Good discovery. My one regret is he didn't choose to develop Yemen soul. Yemen soul. <laughs> is that like lemon soul? That was a, like yeah, the fish. Charlotte fish. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> we started with tumbleweed we, and we ended <laughs> with tumbleweed. Well done, Pete. Look, ended it nicely. That's structural masterpiece. That's why I did that. <laughs> anyway, that's it. There you go. That's that's all you get. That's your Yemen feast. That was a feast. There was loads of things. Uh, that was terrific, actually. That was varied, diverse, interesting, relevant, located in the correct place and time. I would say an excellent episode, my friend. Thanks, buddy. In fact, I would say you blew me away. So. So, the eyes turn to you, Peter. This is always a really exciting slash terrifying <laughs> moment, isn't it? All right, right let's get the doors later around. Let's just get on, shall we? Okay, Pete, you ready? Yes. All right, your place is... Ooh, give it to me. Colombia. Nice. I've heard of it. Yeah, that sounds fun, <laughs> doesn't it? That's my main criteria these days. <laughs> okay, and your time period is... 1930 Ooh. to 1940. Nice. It's only a decade. That's a documented decade, and that's what I want. All right, and your topic then. Your topic is... Riddles. <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> I felt I was going great guns there, and then uh, sort of flopped at the end a little. <laughs> Riddles in Colombia during 1930 I didn't even know that was one of the topics we had. That's what the Dursalator for you. That's a mystery, or you might call it... A riddle. Riddle me this. <laughs> Batman. Oh, my Lord. That's an go. interesting one. That is an interesting one. Riddles in Colombia, 1930 to 1940. Pete, we'll see you back here in a fortnight. I'll be here. Okay, well, on that surprising ending, that's our show for this week. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody, and thank you, Ryan, for a marvellous episode. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just to say hi, you can reach out to us through the website, hhepodcast.com, or email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us at hhepodcast, and if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert every time we post one of our one-minute animated 
HHE Bytes. Which are awesome fun. And just a reminder, we're plotting to have a newsletter sometime soon, so if you want to get involved in that, do go to hhepodcast.com and subscribe there. Otherwise, we'll be back again soon with... The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to Ryan. Thank you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. I woke up this morning, got out of my bed. Oh boy. I looked in my fish tank. My blue fish was dead. Oh no! I ate it for breakfast What? And went out to work oh. I met my new boss there Yeah, boy Her eyes were so sad They were so sad I got the blues they I got the yeah, 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 many blues She said she'd be working She'd be working fine All over the summer Hot, hot, hot And she'd always be watching Watching me she was Al, your mama Al, your mama Just So that's what I ate Ain't It was served up so pretty yeah, On a Muslim blue plate On a Muslim I got plate. the blue I got the yeah, 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 Yemeni blues And I went home so tired Oh Exhausted and crying Woo-hoo. It's all made okay cause yeah, I made podcasts with Ryan Who's that guy? So Ryan he tells me What did he say? Blue doesn't exist Say what? I'm not really sure But he really insists Yeah I did So I guess that I've got the I've got the yeah 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 Yemeni greens Yeah, boy. I like green berries. I like green ham. I like green eggs. And I like green spam. I like green monkeys. I like green shoes. I like green greens. And I like green greens too. Yeah, oh baby. The yeah, 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 many greens. Thank you very much for listening to the show tonight. We'd like to welcome you back next time for another special episode of History Happened Everywhere. Subscribe to the podcast and send us an email. H-A-G podcast. And we'll leave it right back. The Yemeni Greens You know what I mean The Yemeni Greens The Yemeni Greens You know what I mean I do boy, I do Green likes and green jeans (laughs) 
Ha <laughs> 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 <laughs>